Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings, from premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. I had to go about it, write it out, and find it myself. And there's some stories I can tell you. This is The Final Word, coming to you from the Afghan Gallery on Brunswick Street in Fitzroy. Uh, I'm sitting with Hamira Mashedi, who is the Vice President of the Afghan-Australian Development Organisation and uh, has been running this restaurant as well, which helps raise funds to help uh, Afghan migrants settling in Australia and uh, and particularly what AADO does is, is helping people in Afghanistan with educational programs um, and a particular focus on women and girls and, and raising their skills and their education level to help them out of poverty. It's a pretty broad portfolio of responsibilities yeah. that you've found yourself carrying here. Yes, indeed. It's been extremely challenging, overwhelming, but very uh, satisfying at the same time. Can you give us uh, an overview of what the current situation is like in Afghanistan, particularly for women and girls, and the way things have changed? I mean, even since the Taliban retook power in 2021, there have been changes throughout that period of time, but uh, what things were like before that and what has shifted in that last couple of years? Uh, well, since the first era of the Taliban about 20 years ago, um, the situation in Afghanistan dramatically changed. Um, I believe, well, we, we believe, I have seen a very chaotic culture that went into Afghanistan, a mixture of the West and the East, everything. And from that, I have witnessed people not having any kind of sense of belonging, unfortunately. The culture is slowly disappearing. People don't have a sense of belonging to a particular country or to a particular clan or particular religion. Everything is just so messy. And um, so since the fall of the gov government in 2021, it's very unfortunate that the girls haven't been able to have proper education. Uh, through ADO, we, since uh, the Taliban announced that w girls are not allowed to go to school, uh, we had managed to discuss it with them to allow us to at least have small groups of girls coming and at least finishing E12. So 12, uh, about 200 girls graduated. Then we had an overwhelming of interest from the girls and we, um, we decided to do another 200 girls, training them to finish their high school. But unfortunately, with the latest announcement, that has not been possible. We've been trying to get a lot of funding. Um, there's been a lot of uh, support from main, mostly from the family that have put in to make sure that we at least continue. Uh, we don't know where politics is going with the Taliban, uh, which is very unfortunate. And uh, we feel that the world has basically turned their head around. There's not a lot of news. There's not a lot of support. Um, we are still... The reason that we wanted to continue is to basically give some hope. The only thing that Afghan people currently, inside of Afghanistan and abroad, all we have is hope. For the last 38 years that I have been away from Afghanistan, I have lived 
with hope for Afghanistan. And to be really honest, we're getting extremely tired. <laughs> it's so tiring emotionally. And when I sat with a lot of the new arrivees from the Afghan, the evacuated ones uh, from Afghanistan in 2021, I realized because they lived in a very chaotic, traumatized environment and every single minute of the day they had to think of how to survive. Whereas us abroad, we become extremely emotional towards the situation in Afghanistan. So mm. that's why emotionally, if you talk to many of us who have lived abroad for the past certain many years, we are just so emotionally tired, Jeff. There's, there's only so long you can carry hope exactly. around for it. It becomes a burden yes, after a, a time. Yes, absolutely, yeah. So the level of restriction, it's almost complete now for women and girls from out here, from a distance. They're not allowed to do anything, to work, to study, to play sport. In practice, is that how it is? Is there is there any a little bit of access to, to yeah, some there, of those there, things? There are rumours and with the direct communication with Afghanistan, apparently there are some schools that are still running, but not after grade six. Right. So children, kids, primary school is still happening for girls and the boys. Mm. And, um, and uh, there are some education in place. Um, uh, don't quote me on that, but uh, for the Taliban's daughters right. and family members. So the Taliban are basically sending their kids to their own little private unknown schools, right. whereas the wider community are not allowed to. And so what are the ramifications of that for an organisation like ADO where everything you've done, I mean, it involves obviously women working in Afghanistan on behalf of the organisation, it involves educating girls in Afghanistan. It, becomes almost impossible to operate, I assume, yes. with the new restrictions. Yeah, exactly. So it's only mainly a few of the male members of the organisation who are able to continue working. We've had many projects um, in Afghanistan, but we still want to continue educating the the men, the male figure, the men, uh, not necessarily just for the girls. We don't want to stop. Mm. Hopefully the situation will change. Hopefully the policies within the Taliban would change and would allow us to, to educate some, some girls in other... Because I don't think any country we know, and it's all, it had been all over the news, that the country can't run without women. So imagine the Taliban's daughters and wives going to the hospital, needing a midwife, needing a doctor. I'm not sure what kind of mentality believes that we can do without women mm. in uh, in society. Yeah, if you're not allowed to see a doctor yeah. who's not a woman, then presumably you need to have some yeah, women who exactly. are doctors, right? Exactly, exactly. So uh, when the takeover took place in 2021, there was a sense that uh, female athletes particularly were at risk of reprisals because they'd been living a kind of life that the Taliban didn't approve of. A lot of them fled the country. Uh, there are 22 Afghan women's players who ended up here in Melbourne um, and the cricket players as well. Have you had any contact with them? Is, is their story Very close known? contact. Yeah. Um, uh, when the evacuation happened from Afghanistan, we were all in lockdown. So I changed this premises, Afghan gallery, into a drop-off for the refugees. And we started doing a lot of catering for them because they were nearby. So I offered some meals at the beginning and then um, Ames decided to do most of the catering from us for the first couple of nights um, when the refugees were arriving in Melbourne. 
Right. Um, so through that, um, I met with uh, the soccer team, the girls' soccer team, and I worked very, very closely. I made um, many, I tried to contact quite a lot of teams and organizations here in Melbourne, and I spoke to Melbourne Victory, and eventually Melbourne Victory did take them under their umbrella, not necessarily through me, but I made the first contact. So I've been very, very close and closely in contact with them. I trained six of the girls here at the restaurant, and so that they've they've got something on their resume and are able to uh, to go into the wider community and find um, jobs. So in terms of an organisation looking after its players, the the situation's very stark with the cricketers, where they were contracted players, contracted to the Afghanistan Cricket Board for about six months before the takeover, uh, and before they left the country. Uh, the International Cricket Council that is the overarching body that runs everything, made no contact with them for, I think, a year and a half um, until the players contacted the ICC first to see where they were, if they were okay, you know, if they were in danger, that sort of thing. The ICC says that the issue of how the Afghanistan board's money is spent is entirely up to that board, even though that board is effectively run by the Taliban now. That board got 37 million US dollars in its last distribution, which the ICC is saying they have no control over how that should be spent. And one of the rules of being a member of the ICC is that you must have a women's cricket team and a women's program, which Afghanistan is ignoring and has largely been ignoring even before the Taliban takeover. Are any of those things surprising to you? I think there should be another word other than surprising. I believe that ICC should not have done such a thing because this really tell us that the Taliban won. They have now they've definitely got it their way. It's the wealth of talent that jumps out when you you know you see all of these talented athletes who've who've had to leave for an Such opportunity um, or not wanting to leave for yes. an opportunity majority of them you speak to they believe that this is just something temporarily mm-hmm. the situation in Afghanistan is bad but they are going back they they feel a lot of guilt that they have left Afghanistan behind and its own people. A lot of them are trying through social media as much as they are allowed uh, to support the girls and the people that they have left behind. I think it's with every one of us. I've been here for 38 years. I still think that I'm here temporarily and I'm, I'm kind of, I've always been ready to go back. Um, but I'm so glad that we've got this NGO and we've always been involved with the situation in Afghanistan and trying to support it in, in any way that we can, possible. Mm. And I, I see exactly the same thing with these new evacuees. They say, oh, Homeira, this is just tempor- temporary. Right. Uh, we need to work hard. We need to study hard. We need to gain as much as we can because we've got a whole country waiting for us. And there's a sense that you need to to march back in there and yes. bring the future with yes, you. Yes, exactly. I mean, that's an extraordinary weight yeah. to carry in yeah, itself. Majority, majority are like that. It would be very rare to come across an Afghan who would not say mm. that they are willing to go back to support the country. Is that a dream more than a reality at this point? It's becoming my dream. <laughs> it's hope. I think. I think hope is the only thing that you can you can carry with you in order to survive, whether you're in the West or in Afghanistan. 
but being able to support even one person in Afghanistan is, is, is a big thing. The only reason that I left my career and have come to the Afghan gallery and to run this institution is for Afghanistan. 60% mm. of the profits go to the people in Afghanistan. Whether it's a dream or a hope, at least it's something that we want to convey and just array that to, to the people of Afghanistan, people that we are in contact with, people that we talk to on daily basis. If you don't have hope and if, you don't, if you're not optimistic, then what can you give them? Mm. They're in total darkness at the moment. And they've been for the past 40 years. And so much of your life in this area of trying to help people is influenced by Dr. Nouria Salehi, who, oh, who started totally. all of this off and who spent her life trying to help people in Afghanistan after she left. Only yesterday she said that she doesn't want to take her medications that she's been prescribed because there might be somebody in Afghanistan in higher need of these particular medications. She's been extremely emotional about the situation. Yeah, all I can say is been, she's been very, very emotional. Yeah, I mean, yeah, and she's after. had a she's been a huge influence in my in my path of life as well. So she was a biophysicist, and she encouraged me to be in science. So I studied science. Then I went humanitarian, working for um, IOM in Indonesia for some time, um, working with the refugees. And um, ever since I've been in Australia, I've been working very closely with the community and with the asylum seekers, with the refugees, mm. and back home in Afghanistan. And she's this example because it's not that you need to be brilliant and talented to deserve to be treated humanely, but, I mean, she leaves Afghanistan, she comes here and contributes to substantial breakthroughs in medical science, in, you know, she's a nuclear physicist, uh, a, a nuclear biophysicist, and contributes to this breakthrough research while not being paid for it initially. I mean, this extraordinary story that she has. And so, I mean, when you, you think about trying to provide education to girls in Afghanistan, you think, well, what a, what a waste it would have been if someone like her wasn't able to express the talents that she has. And what a waste it surely must have been for so many other women who didn't get the opportunity, who would have been as brilliant exactly. and didn't get the opportunity exactly. to express it. Exactly. Or a lot of the talented women at the moment who are still in hiding in Afghanistan. Yeah. Doctors, lawyers, uh, judges that we know of, they've been hiding in basements because they are targets of the Taliban. Is there any way out? Uh, just too far to away? be really honest, if I talk um, like how my aunt Nuria would speak, she was never keen to get people out of Afghanistan. She always focused and tried to talk to any organization, government, anybody to support bringing peace and stability in Afghanistan, not necessarily taking Afghans out of Afghanistan. When, when we left Afghanistan in about 40 years ago, the population was about 18 million. Now that, it, I think now at the moment, it's about 26 million. So over these times of war, there's been more population and how many more can you get out of Afghanistan? Mm. So I think we need to bring stability and we need to bring it for a long, long time. 
Afghan people have suffered way too much and it's just so unfortunate that people just don't want to talk about it anymore. At the beginning there was just such great support from the community uh, but I see less and less of that and I think it should be the wider community who should stand up and have a voice because governments are being very extremely political. We need to bring and make some kind of a difference. Do people just get tired of hearing about a problem that doesn't get resolved? Yeah, I think so. I believe so. There's just I, I don't blame people whether they're in the West or Afghanistan, but you get everyone's busy. We are just so busy making ends meet. We've got jobs, we've got families. But I think we, we need to make some time to stand up and, and have a voice on behalf of those who don't have any means of being heard. It's a long road ahead. Yeah. Amara Machete, thank yes. you for joining the final word. Thank you, Jeff. It was lovely talking to you. That was Hamira Mashedi at the Afghan Gallery restaurant just before the evening rush starts up. You could hear the Melbourne trams going by in the background and uh, the people chatting in the kitchen. It, it was it, it was a strangely peaceful environment to be talking about really difficult things. And you know, I, I don't think she'd mind me saying that was a a tough conversation for her in, in a few different ways. Yeah, I enjoyed listening to it, Jeff. So a great job there. You said to me when listening to it back to, to wait for the pauses, like you can kind of tell so much when uh, in an interview occasionally by what's not said and Hamira there, like when she discussed at the start the idea of there being for such a long time hope, but that diminishing in recent years and even referring to how for so long it was the idea of coming to Australia on a temporary basis and that there would be a chance to return to Afghanistan. And now, I mean, if they were to do so, they would be targets. They're all at risk now. Anyone who's effectively been in exile or, or made a decision to leave Afghanistan on the basis of the Taliban taking over again, especially with the world now looking elsewhere, and I kind of touched on this at the very start of the show, that there was a lot of attention last year and there's a lot of attention in cricket circles now but between times a lot has happened and um, and a lot more surely will too so yeah it's not just a media cycle thing there needs to be greater attention on people who have fled and, and Hamira explains that with, with great eloquence. It's part of the confusion of this whole situation as well that as much as she's so concerned about the female athletes who've fled Afghanistan uh, she still said in a separate conversation that she still wants to see the men's team able to play there's this conflict with a lot of Afghans where that is a point of pride and, and she did reinforce that point that that it is meaningful to them to see their men's team playing as well you know that they don't want to see their male players missing out on opportunities while their female players are also missing out on opportunities so it's 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 so difficult to find a morally or ethically consistent point on which to land when you get into this conversation and I think that's why it's it, it is unsolvable in a way yeah so I think that it's best just to explain the different perspectives and let people form their own view so yeah I know Rashid Khan copped a fair bit last week when putting out his statement ropeable with cricket Australia and, and a lot of Afghanistan players followed suit from his perspective they are taking 
enormous risks as well to be anti-Taliban. I mean, they use the former flag, they they sing the former national anthem, which is all going to be provocative in terms of the, the new regime. So they're, they're caught in the middle of this as well. They're not villains here. But I was listening to the, the Tracy Holmes documentary that she made over the weekend on the ABC. Women who were set to represent Afghanistan when those um, allocations of funds were coming in, I mean, very sadly, just before the Taliban took over, right? We weren't far away from seeing an Afghanistan senior women's team represent their nation on the world stage. Maybe even this under-19s World Cup that's taking place at the moment, maybe that would have been the first chance for an Afghanistan women's side to have played potentially given the expanded nature of that tournament. But hearing some of those players interviewed and saying that, well, in a way, maybe the men do have to feel some pain too. The women who are effectively exiled, living in different parts of the world, many of them in Australia, aren't able to play cricket, aren't able to access the funds that were notionally being sent their way. Um, maybe the only way for this to work is for the men to feel the pain as well. And, and I understand that perspective too. Hmm. And then the other way of looking at that is that if the men don't play, then the problems of Afghanistan recede in the broader public consciousness. If the country's never seen, never heard from, then it becomes easier for people to not think about it. And and I wonder if in some ways, or in most ways, that would suit the Taliban very well indeed. It was notable to me that all of the Afghanistan players who commented, the Afghanistan cricket board officials who commented, there were no Taliban officials who expressed their dismay or disappointment at not playing a series against Australia. You know, it wasn't that long ago that the Taliban were trying to ban men from playing sport as well, saying that it was cricket was a Western imperialist product and that time spent doing this would be better spent in religious study and, and that sport was a frivolous waste of time and that cricket shouldn't be being played at all. You know, that is something that they softened on over a longer period of time seeing how deeply the sport had ingrained itself in the country but I'm sure there are still strong elements within that clerical leadership that would be perfectly happy for cricket to die off in that country and for people to stop looking at Afghanistan and thinking about Afghanistan the less they're in the public eye the less effective opposition there might be internationally to that government. I think it's worth adding here that suppressive regimes thrive when expression has been flattened, deadened. And really, that, as you've talked about before, Jeff, when we've had musicians on, on the show, that, that cricket and sport is performance art in its own way. It, it's certainly an expression of oneself and, and that cuts across everything the Taliban stand for, right? And any regime that, that sees fit to treat their population in these ways. So, yeah, when Afghanistan cricketers and others who support the national side speak of this being the one good thing in Afghanistan or the one good thing from Afghanistan at the moment, the, the men's cricket team, that might be a bit of an exaggeration, but I'm sure it's not too far from the truth. It does ring true that it is one of the positive stories, right? We've spoken about the, the men's rise from, well, what were they? They were they were not even an affiliate member of the ICC at the turn of the century to where they've come. They've qualified for another men's 50 over World Cup that, that'll be in October this year. We might come back to that in a sec in terms of the cricket politics around this. Of course, they were in the T20 World Cup in Australia just a few months ago. So the men's side has been such a story to celebrate and you can imagine that the new regime, now all the players have of course distanced themselves from the Taliban and as we mentioned before, um, using the old flag etc, I want them to be a far, as far away from the public view as is possible so uh, your point is intellectually consistent there that they would be quite happy that Australia have, have shut the door on this occasion. Mm. And those players, they they can't be 
completely explicit about that either. They can't be out there denouncing the Taliban every day because they're putting at risk people who are close to them who are still in Afghanistan. You know, there's there's there seems a balancing act where they're they're trying to do symbolic things without necessarily saying too much. You know, trying to to be able to have some plausible deniability to to not get people in trouble who are close to them. You know, it must be a completely fraught position that they're in. So, uh, you know, there's a huge amount of sympathy for the Afghanistan men's players and that's been expressed by a lot of people who who take the view that you just have to let things go on. It doesn't tally for me, though. It doesn't ethically stack up. I mean, when you hear comments about uh, you should be leaving politics out of sport, uh, nothing's more political than banning half your population from playing sport. You know, it's inherently political. Mm, the, mm. the act is political the situation is political there is it's all politics and no sport at this point and the comparisons that have been made to apartheid south africa are valid comparisons if you've got literally the majority of your population being oppressed by a minority you know the women are a populational majority by a couple of percent generally across the board if if that level that scope of, of oppression is happening. You know, that's not just a country having a policy that you don't like or politics you don't agree with, whatever it might be. That's, that's a wholesale, full-scale oppression of a mass of people. And so it seems impossible to say that you should just let that slide because it's in the interests of some people to still see the men's team go around you know those those two things don't stack up yeah and remember when it was apartheid south africa it was a it was a collective effort along with sanctions and sporting boycotts glen eagles agreement etc to isolate south africa that, that's not what is quite going on here there are the economic sanctions no. of course but it's not as though afghanistan is being exiled um, from playing international sport or at least not as yet and, and even you look forward and we'll get into this in a sec mm. i think the, the the forward calendar but afghanistan this year they, they do play a number of series right they play bangladesh away now that's in uh, June and July. They play test matches one day as T20s over there. Mm. They, they host Zimbabwe for test matches one day as and T20s. They're playing at home against Pakistan. Of course, it won't be at home, but they're, they're, you know, they're playing presumably matches in the UAE. I think that'll be against yep. Pakistan. That's in, in August. That's just one day internationals. That builds up uh, to the 50-over World Cup. They have three more um, home one days against the West Indies before that. Then they'll be in the top 10 sides in the world taking the field at the ICC's showpiece event once every four years. Yeah, the T20 World Cups are a big deal, but as we know, Jeff, the 50-over World Cup is the real deal, and they'll be there in India. And I can't see any scenario where they are left out in the cold to that extent. All of those bilateral series, in all probability, will go ahead, and I can't conceive of a scenario where they're booted from the World Cup. There was not even a discussion of that a few months ago when it came to the T20 World Cup in Australia. Yeah, and so that brings us back to Australia and when you're talking through this subject, you can make the ethical arguments, you can talk about the ethical responsibility, the moral decisions, was this a, a moral thing for Cricket Australia to decide or for the Australian government to encourage them to decide to withdraw from the series on, on ethical grounds. Uh, you can also question how much ethics came into it versus convenience because Australia didn't 
boycott playing Afghanistan in the T20 World Cup when they needed to win that game handsomely in order to try to qualify for the semi-finals. Australia went ahead and played that game and there was no murmur of not going ahead. Australia pulls out of this bilateral one-day series because they don't need to play it, they don't need to win it, or not necessarily because that, but that is a factor. So talk us through that part in terms of how the scheduling lines up and uh, where this series would have sat in terms of incentive for Australia to play it. Yeah, I, I, I take it a step further, Jeff. This series was never going ahead. In, in the same way, like, so Australia cancelled the test match against Afghanistan last year after after the Taliban took over. There would have been a test this summer. I think, Jeff, it was going to be Hobart, wasn't it? They were going to play that test mm. in, or maybe it wasn't announced. But I know yeah. it was going to be yeah, in Perth, was. wasn't it? Maybe it was Perth originally, then Hobart. It was Hobart. Perth and then Hobart. Perth, Perth had the, the lockdown situation where you couldn't get into ah, yes. WA and so they moved it to Hobart. Right. 2021. Right. So, so there was going to be a test match and the, and the Taliban taking over was enough to knock that on the head. It wasn't enough to play Afghanistan in the World Cup, though. Now, did, did the situation mm. improve between the Taliban yeah. taking over and the World Cup last year? Of course it didn't. Now, look at the mechanics of the series that was coming up. Australia have already qualified for the 50-over World Cup comfortably. As it happened, so have Afghanistan. Um, they're already in an automatic qualification spot given the way they've played in the uh, the World Cup Super League. Now, these three one-dayers were meant to be played after the one-dayers in India. Let's look at the calendar. Australia are playing India in three one-dayers on the mm. 17th, 19th and 22nd of March. What begins on the 25th of March? The Indian Premier League. Were they, were they seriously saying that Australia's most talented white ball cricketers who have all got multi-million dollar IPL deals and fair enough this isn't about that but they're, they're all going to be in India already having been there for the one day series that Australia are playing there in the T20s that Australia are playing there no it's just one days isn't it they're not playing T20s mm. this time but nevertheless the, the white ball series that's following the, the Border Gavaska test matches are we seriously saying that Australia's IPL superstars were going to be dragged out to play three one days in the UAE to miss the start of the IPL of course we are not that was never mm. going to happen. Were they going to inconvenience the IPL owners and the BCCI more broadly who have such a say in, in how world cricket operates? I mean, it, it, that seems fanciful to me. It feels closer to the mark that this series was never happening anyway. And yes, it is true to say the statement they have made around women's and girls' education and rights has been a, has been a hefty one in the last week. But what I would love to know, in the absence of the counterfactual, we never will, what would have they said about this series had that ban on girls' education never been, or that edict never came down by the Taliban? Would have they, mm. would have they still boycotted the series on the basis of the Taliban being there? And if so, how could have they intellectually justified playing them in the 20-over in the World Cup? Back in October, they're using this as the, the, the defining moment in this conversation, when in reality, looking at the schedule, there are three days between the final one day and the start of the IPL. Are we seriously saying that all of the, the white ball guns were going to go off to the UAE and play a week of one-day cricket against an opponent that is already in the World Cup, they're already in the World Cup, it's the definition of a series that doesn't actually mean anything because it's at the very end of the, the Super League cycle. So, yeah, I, I'm naturally cynical on those grounds as well. Well, I wonder what would have happened had Australia needed to win that series in order to qualify, for instance, for the 50-over World Cup. You know, wonder what might have gone around in that situation. And I also wonder how much it had to do with the fact that Australia and India agreed late in the piece to add three one-dayers to the end of that test tour because presumably the dates hadn't been set for the Afghanistan tour 
Uh, it was yep. only, what was it, about six months ago that the BCCI and Cricket Australia agreed to, let's have a, a three ODI series, even though we're already going to have another one of those in September this year. <laughs> let's have three more. We'll call it World Cup warm-ups. If those games hadn't been there, then maybe those Australian players could have hopped over. Well, 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 more to the point, maybe, maybe they put those one-dayers in with India knowing full well that one way or another they'd pull out of the Afghanistan series, which would mm. bridge the end of the Border Gavaskar series and the IPL. And it does beautifully for, for, for Australian cricketers now who are playing across the formats. They don't need to go anywhere. Yeah. They can stay in situ. They can play the one-dayers, which are of benefit in the build-up to the World Cup. Mm. Because originally, the, the draft schedules that we were seeing, there was going to be a test match in that week. And the test series mm. got brought forward to start on the 9th of February. So we're in the weeds a bit here when it comes to scheduling, but mm. we can't divorce that from the conversation around the announcement that was made last week. It, it, it'd be yep. naive to do so. Yeah, and th- you could probably put together a, a pretty decent Australian one-day team of players who, who weren't going to be in the IPL this year, like Smith, Labuschagne, Cummins, Zampa, etc. Sure. But it, all, all of that's somewhat beside the point. The likelihood of there being an Australian squad playing while the IPL was getting going was always low. And the real test, again, will be what happens in the 50-over World Cup later this year. Because exactly. 99% chance Afghanistan will be allowed to play. They're not going to get boycotted out of it within the next few months. Australia will definitely be drawn to play them because that's how the pool system works. And what will be the upshot of that? Will Australia be willing to forego the points for a game that most of their competitors would be expecting to win the corresponding fixture? Are they willing to sacrifice a chance to qualify for a semi-final and make it into the finals. There's prize money at stake, there's uh, TV rights money at stake, bonuses for players, all of the rest of it. So abandoning this series doesn't actually mean anything much if they don't back it up. It's whether they're prepared to do the next step. Yeah, and they have to boycott that game. I can't see a scenario where Australia plays Afghanistan in the 50-over World Cup later this year if they do this is all bullshit everything we've heard over the last couple of weeks it'll it'll prove it's all mm. bullshit so they are they are now forced into a corner of sorts where they have to boycott that afghanistan world cup game you're right though there'll be hell to pay for that they did boycott a world cup game back in 1996 of course they weren't willing to go to colombo to play sri lanka so it's not without precedent and we've seen other nations that was on that was on safety grounds was. that was a team yeah. being nervous about traveling rather than saying we refuse to play sri lanka for moral reasons that's true uh, i suppose you could say the the england boycott of zimbabwe was kind of both to do with security mm. um which we spoke about on the zimbabwe special last year it, you know whether there was a letter or not was never really proven conclusively but it was partly a political statement as well absolutely unwilling to travel to zimbabwe mm. at that time we we saw uh, a game against kenya that was boycotted in the 2003 world cup as well i think that was new zealand who weren't willing to go there and i think that was more security than than political reasons as well so mm-hmm. yes that, that it has happened but in the modern era where, where these World Cup games are worth so very, very much from a television perspective, if Australia didn't play Afghanistan in a game in India, um, there'd be hell to pay. So there'll be competing mm. interests there. Are Cricket Australia willing to be intellectually consistent? And are they willing to, assuming, of course, the Taliban don't you know get rolled, which they won't, or have an about-face on women's education, which they won't either, between mm. now and October. So are they willing to, to hold the line on this 
all the way through 2023 or will for experience knowing that it is a cutthroat format where only four teams out of 10 make it through to the semi-finals losing a game effectively forfeiting a game and giving the points to Afghanistan could put Australia into a precarious position as far as making that final four is concerned it'll be interesting Mm. to see the draw as well if they're scheduled to play Afghanistan early in the World Cup where you know, that they won't know what their destiny is going to be. They'll need to win all of their games. It'll be a lot harder to boycott that than it would be if they've got Afghanistan in their ninth game and they already know they're through to the semifinals in a dead rubber. Well, then, then maybe, much as it's been in the last couple of weeks, they can they can pull the pin out of that one. So I watch this space mm-hmm. on, on that. But yeah, that, that is very much where my attention is. What will they do the next time they're scheduled to play Afghanistan, which will be in India in a high-stakes World Cup game in October or November? And then when you talk about organisations, you ultimately come back to the ICC. So you can make all of the arguments that we've made back and forth about what is the right thing to do, whether countries should be agreeing collectively to not play Afghanistan en masse, whether they should be playing them because that helps keep something good alive for that country. But it's all pretty simple when you come down to the rules of engagement for the ICC. If you're a full member nation, it's all there in black and white you have to fund a women's cricket program that's not optional Mm. that's not that's not if you feel like it that's not if the political and religious climate permits at that time it's clearly there in black and white and afghanistan never have and the previous iteration of the Afghanistan Cricket Board before the Taliban came back didn't have much interest in getting a women's team up and running. They were slow walking it as slowly as they possibly could and making various excuses about why it wasn't ready and they couldn't get it started yet and so on. They'd gradually, grudgingly got a squad together who was training and who just started to get a little bit of payment. Um, They had substantial revenue streams coming in from the ICC. Some of that money was supposed to be spent on the development of women's cricket. Um, None of it is being spent on that now because the ACB, as it is, not to be confused with the old Australian version, is under Taliban control. They had the upper management turfed out as soon as the Taliban took over and, and had friendlier faces installed. And they're being very closely watched, I'm sure. You know, they've got the Taliban right over their shoulders looking at what they're doing. So there will be no women's cricket team. None of the money that makes it into the hands of the Afghanistan board will make it out of the country to support women's cricketers elsewhere. None of that will happen. And all of that is completely contrary to the ICC rules that let Afghanistan be a full member country. So it should be a simple decision, really, you can make all of the moral arguments you want, but it's there in the charter. So either they have to change the rules of membership, which they haven't done, but they've been willing to let a member country sit there for two years now in blatant breach of it after many years before that in you know breaching it in the spirit at the very least uh, and doing absolutely nothing about it. Absolutely fuck all. We've had two years of this will be discussed at the next meeting and that was you know i mean when they were asked questions by that abc documentary the, that was the only response i oh, will be discussing this at the meeting in march well fucking whoop de doo what's that going to do aside from whatever happened when you discussed it at the meeting three months before that and three months before that and literally nothing was done no resolutions no statements nothing public no conditions on funding nothing at all. Um, Afghanistan will catch their next check when the next uh, chunk of the broadcast rights comes through and will spend it however 
the Taliban says they can spend it. Yeah, I, I guess I'm willing to take on face value that they were making some steps in the right direction under the, I guess, was it two chairmen ago, Jeff, from memory? I think there was, mm. a, there was two chairmen ago had an interest in advancing the women's program, then he was knocked off and then the Taliban take over and yep. they, they change again. But there was some progress being made. I think we have to acknowledge that it, it has been more sensitive in Afghanistan than other places getting a women's program up and about. But, but it was trending mm. in that direction. We said before, it, who knows, it might have been this year where the Afghanistan women's team started taking the field as a as a proper living thing of course that's that's now not possible at all or it couldn't be further away from possible with with players scattered around the world unable to even train together let alone play together under the Afghanistan flag where the difference with the men is that they are in a strong enough financial position many of whom are on the you know the t20 international circuit they're getting the chance to play in um, series around the world as part of the ftp they've got the world cup super league at the moment mm. they're in the next world cup as we described before so it's very different for the women who've got nothing to hope for really i'm um, coming back mm. to that that word before where when you were talking to hamira like hope is everything and, and i don't know how you could have any hope if you're an afghanistan woman's cricketer at the moment on the way through the ranks, not that there are any ranks to go through sort of in the first mm. place. So you're right, it should be an open and shut decision for the ICC now, but as ever with these matters, um, you need to look at how the sums add up and, and the elimination of a full member nation um, will have financial repercussions and I'd be surprised. And maybe we, we might be proven wrong at that March meeting, they might go, right, it's our turn to lay a line in the sand as well and they might take Australia's lead and, and that might be the start of other countries pulling the pin on these mm. grounds. But as we've described before, that's not um, clear cut or black and white or perfect either. So this mm. continues to be something that requires sort of deft diplomatic work behind the scenes with sort of more strident public facing commentary that reinforces that uh, there needs to be a change in that country if Afghanistan can sit at the big kids table into the future. I think you're likely to find resistance as well in terms of political blocks. There's more likely to be a, a banding together of at least a few of the Asian countries to say, you know, why should England and Australia with their moral philosophies be able to push us around? You know, you do tend sure. to get that cultural fault line as well of, of Western progressivism being rejected by countries that view themselves as more traditional or, uh, you know, just not wanting to have to follow the lead. You know, there are so many geopolitical and sociological factors in, in the push-pull there beyond just the financial when you're dealing with ICC member countries. So I don't anticipate that coming from the ICC. I don't think there'll be enough support. I think there'll be at least three or four dissenting countries who will say, you know, you, you should leave Afghanistan alone to sort out their own problems and do what they do, but how they can justify that when it's blatantly inconsistent with the membership qualifications I don't know and so you go around in this circle of saying that you know I, I think morally and ethically countries shouldn't be playing Afghanistan but also you speak to people from there who say this is one of the only good things we've got going you know we've they've lost so much there, there are uh, I mean I've heard people speaking about their own country as, as a, a traumatised country, a traumatised people. Decades of this stuff, you know, decades of violence and bloodshed, it, it, it has an effect more broadly than just on the individuals. And, and in all of that, there is something that they've succeeded at. You know, there is something that, that has got going. And, and so to say that that can't happen is devastating, but maybe it has to be.
maybe it has to be devastating. Well, yeah, and uh, going back into the shadows entirely and, and taking them out of the organised structure of international cricket, that will be yet one further lifeline that's that's uh, that's cut off when it comes to trying to mm. provide a better future for these young athletes. As we said at the beginning, there's there's no perfect answer here. I think you've got to be a little bit suspicious of people who are who are speaking effusively about this in one way or the other. Like you see some people who are like, no, this is just an outrage. Um, you know, of course they should continue playing. Um, politics shouldn't inform sport, which is clearly bullshit. And others that say the door should be slammed immediately and that Afghanistan should never be allowed back in. And again, we've hopefully gone through the complexities of, of, of that hardline approach as well. So, yeah, as with a lot of things in life, there's so much grey area here. And I think that the best thing that we can all keep doing is is trying to talk about it where possible and taking opportunities to tell the story so that um, so these don't end up being only raised when there are lightning rod moments like um, Australia pulling out a couple of weeks ago. Well, we haven't got any closer to answers, but that's because there aren't any. Um, you, you can hold on to hope, but as we spoke about, that seems further away than ever. It's a downbeat end to a Final Word episode, but appropriately so. I think we can leave it there for now, um, and we'll be back to this story, I'm sure, in the, the months and years ahead. I had to go.